Hi, I'm Jim Shooter, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 65 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, I am joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there, and that would be one Mr. Bob Lucius. Bob, happy new year! Rick, uh, do I hear fireworks? I don't. I'm sorry, well, I don't. You do, they're a little delayed in your area. <laughs> But this is the first time I get a chance to say Happy New Year to you, Bob, and uh, welcome to 2022. 2022. I, did, I didn't think we were going to make it, Rick. I, I know. There were we had, some doubts. Yeah, there were some rough years there, you know, 2020, 2021, rough years. But hey, it's a brand new chance to, uh, to, to make it happen and excel, which I think that's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We have a special guest joining us on the show today. Uh, that would be Mr. Jim Shooter. Uh, Jim Shooter uh, is someone who is just he spent the last 50 years in the, the comic industry and uh, in many ways um, revolutionized it, uh, especially in the 80s when he was in the Marvel editor in chief. And then in the 90s with with the with Valiant and Broadway and Defiant. So he is uh, we're we're so excited to have him on because we want to talk to him about, of course, his time around the character Captain America. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be great. You know, he is a, he's a fixture of, of conventions. You see him out there, but he's also a controversial character. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say about uh, um, his time at Marvel and, and elsewhere as well. That's true. I mean, we have had a, a plenty of guests that come on the show that have all had um, some comments about their time with Jim Shooter. And, and, and we're all about uh, fair play and fair balance. So we want to hear uh, Jim's take on on some of these things as well. So it's going to be a great conversation. Yep. Uh, you know, Bob, one of the things that we forgot to do two episodes ago, um, speaking of, and this kind of actually ties in very nicely with, uh, with our guests today, but when we did episode 63, which was Captain America 292 and American Christmas, um, we got, we, we skipped the epilogue at the end because we were so excited about the story. We wanted to talk about the story and we're like, Oh, we'll get to that in a second. And we never did. And so I have it here in front of me, Bob. Um, There is uh, the end of 292. We have um, uh, Bernie proposing to Steve, right? Mm -hmm. She says, will you marry me? And then um, they kind of end the story. And then, we cut to this one page epilogue, if you will, uh, at the very end here. And it says Central Park, New York City. Several days later, a bizarre alien construct has materialized in a large clearing in the park, attracting the attention of a number of New York superhuman protectors, including the Avengers. And so there's there's four panels here. So the top panel shows this um, this alien I guess it's kind of—it's shaped like a, a ring, right? And it's some sort of—it um, almost looks like a, a coliseum, if you will, right? When you're looking at, you know, those, right? It looks like a, like there's something in the middle that everybody would be watching. Um, but it's—it's 
it's just a, a big gigantic ring uh, but it has like some sort of almost like this is all planned in some way almost like well bob without much further ado i say let's get to our guest mr jim shooter our next guest has spent over 50 years in the comic industry and really needs no introduction but that said i want to highlight his work uh, as a writer editor editor-in-chief for DC and Marvel Comics in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, to helping found new comic universes for Valiant, Defiant, and Broadway comics in the 90s. Uh, He's continued his comics career in several areas the last 20 years, including writing gold key characters for Dark Horse and even returning to write for for DC and Valiant for a little bit. Currently, he's the editor-in-chief for Illustrated Media. So we are honored to have Jim Shooter join us today. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's just start real quick before we get into your work centering around Captain America. Perhaps you could share a little bit about how you broke into comics as a 14-year-old selling Superman and Supergirl stories to, to DC. Well, it was I was 13, but uh, I uh, my family needed money. And I'm trying to figure out how you you know get a job when you're, they won't hire you down at the plant. You know when you're uh, 12 13 so i uh i loved comics and i thought hey maybe somebody must get paid for doing this and and so i uh i put together uh um the best i could a comic book i i didn't know what a script looked like so i, I made it look as much like a comic book as i could i did a cover in color i did um little layouts for every panel and word balloons and uh um sent it in to dc the editor liked it, and he said, hey, you know, you, you might have some talent. Why don't you uh, send us another one? So I sent him two more, sent him two-parters. And then he called me up, and he says, we're going to buy these three and publish them, and now we want to start using you as a regular writer. And your first assignment is Supergirl. That'll be uh, 12 pages next Friday. Okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. And away I went. And, but mostly I did the Legion of Superheroes. That was my mm-hmm. main book, my monthly book. And then I did everything else. They did all the other Superman titles, uh, action and, and Superman and uh, world science, all those uh, titles. I did. The only thing I didn't do was Lois Lane. And that was just by accident. Now, when they offered you the role to write comics, did they know you were a teenager? I had no idea. I, I live 400 miles away. And I think, uh, the, I think he thought I was a college student, you know, like I was 20 years old or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the he wanted me to fly up to New York, stay in a hotel for a week, and they would come to the office every day so they could teach me a few things. And I kind of hesitated. And he said, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I just turned 14. And he said, put your mother on the phone. So I had to put my mother on the phone. And she was on board. It was fine. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, the family needed the money. And uh, so she had to come with me on my first business trip, which was a little dorky. But, but <laughs> I was 14. Sure. Uh, wow and then the rest they say is history wow a little bit of a a curveball jim i don't i don't know if you've had this sort of question before but you know we're all we're all familiar with the the what if storytelling format you know first introduced in 1977 and of course as you know disney plus has had a a a streaming show for marvel the what if it's been you know really popular and so i want to ask a jim shooter what if question all right all right so i don't know maybe it's apocryphal but I think I read someplace in an interview with you that uh, you sort of got 
turned on to comics, uh, maybe reignited uh, your passion in comics after uh, a surgery and you were recovering and you had a stack of comics uh, that you read. And uh, I think there were Marvel comics. And this sort of got you thinking about storytelling from the comic book perspective. And this is what led you eventually to, to send those stories into DC. But let's play what if a bit. Uh, what if you'd never come across those comics uh, or you never had that youthful audacity to mail off those stories? Do you think you still would have found your way to the industry or where might you have, what other path might you have taken? Well, number one, in, in uh, late fifties, early sixties, comic books were everywhere, you know, and if you're in a kid's ward, and it, I, I didn't bring any comics with me. You're in a kid's ward at, at a hospital. It was. It had thousands of comics. Right? There, there were stacks and stacks of them, and and uh, uh, so you know, I had I had to basically a week to kill. It was minor surgery, but I mean, I had to be there for a week. And in those days, things took longer. And uh, so, I mean, I picked up some DC comics that were pristine, looked like nobody ever touched them, and uh, I read them. They were about the same as when I quit reading when I was eight. You know, I stopped reading comics when I was eight for a while because they were all the same. They're all pretty boring. And uh, so then I, I picked up a couple of these ratty, dog-eared, red-to-death Marvel comics. Everybody read them. And boy, they were, they were revolutionary. They, they were totally different. They were, they were uh, you know, Superman is cutting the ribbon at bridge openings. And, and, and you know, nobody cared about, you know, just like, oh, it's Superman, it's fine. Marvel, I mean, the characters were more real, more human and 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 uh you know had had their i stan always used to say heroes with problems and i i corrected him once <laughs> i said i said it's more than that it's heroes with lives and he said well yeah but try explaining that to the new york post <laughs> <laughs> so i said all right i get it i get it you, you give him a soundbite but uh anyway i mean that's that's how i got started and if i hadn't come across comics if i hadn't thought of the idea of trying to get a job doing comics, I probably would be uh, uh, a scientist because I was totally into science, especially chemistry. And, and, uh, wow. and I was, I had good aptitude for it, and, you know. Uh, so that's, I probably would have, right. you know, been, you know, trying to get rockets to beams. <clears throat> <laughs> well, uh, obviously the, the comic industry is, is better for how it turned out. So, um, I hope so. Yes. Uh, now, in, in January 1976, um, you arrived to Marvel and you had the title of associate editor, more or less second in command to the editor in chief, who uh, right. was Marv Wolfman at the time. Yes. And then after Marv um, was replaced by Jerry Conway briefly, like three weeks. Yes. And then Jerry was replaced by Archie Goodwin, right. who lasted about a year and a half. And um, then you became the editor-in-chief in January of 1978, two years later, and you were Marvel's ninth editor-in-chief. Where do you um, get that number? I, I cannot imagine why everybody says ninth. Where, it's not? I, I'll name them for you. Stan didn't call himself editor-in-chief, so you count him or not. Roy was the first. Len was the second. Mar was the third. Jerry was the fourth. Archie was the fifth. And I'm either sixth or seventh, depending on whether you count Stan. Okay. And that's it. And I, I, somebody came up with this nine and it's everywhere. Everybody says I'm the ninth editor in chief. Who well, thanks for setting ones? that record straight. We appreciate it. Who are that. the other ones? Uh, you know, I mean, I'd be fine if there were, but there aren't. Sure. 
So here you are as the, the editor-in-chief two years uh, after you've joined Marvel. Um, but either way, no matter the number, there certainly were a bunch that kind of in recent years had kind of gone through. And uh, one of our listeners, Grant Ball, uh, asked the question, um, in the years before you became editor-in-chief, there was significant turnover in the position. What do you think was the cause of this? And what did you do to avoid it? Well, uh, number one, the situation evolved. Okay, when, when Roar was the editor-in-chief, um, he, Stan was still in charge. Stan was the president of the company at that time, I think, or became the president. Um, and I think it's, it, the job will wear you down. It, it's a hard job. And so after a while, Roy just wanted to go and be a writer. Uh, Len, uh, he had some health issues and stuff like that. He lasted about eight months and, uh, you know, he was showing up for work at 2 PM, you know, stuff like that. So finally he just, they, they, mutually agreed that he couldn't do this um marv uh was there for exactly a year and they he wasn't doing real well at it and he was allowed to leave gracefully um jerry just couldn't take it (laughs) it's a three weeks goodbye and then archie was nice mellow guy he's he was good archie was the smartest guy you ever met He, he he could have done anything but the one thing he lacked was patience dealing with the business people. He couldn't stand the bean counters and the lawyers and the licensing people and all that stuff. When I came in, I, I had a little preparation for that because I, when I worked for Mort Weisinger, he, he taught me that stuff. He, he, he taught me about licensing, merchandising. He, he showed me, you know, the, the business of the business, the financials and stuff. I knew he, he, I was taught printing production and in-house production by Jack Adler. All, and I mean, I learned about all the skills to do with comics, you know, coloring and lettering and everything. But I also learned about the the rest of the business and the business of the business. So I came in there a little more prepared to deal with the bean counter. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, for A, it helps to speak their language. And B, it helps if you if you know how to couch things to them, you know, then uh you can uh you can win arguments. And I, mm-hmm. I did. So so anyway I, and I you know I'm a pretty tough kid and so I it was hard, but I stuck it out. During your earliest days at Marvel, 76 to 78, you were overseeing Jack Kirby's return yes. to Captain oh, yeah. America with uh, issues 193 to 214. Um, any memories of, of working with Jack you want to share? And of course, you have that wonderful piece of original art behind you as well. Well, uh, working with Jack was great. He was a gentleman. He was so nice. He was... Uh, uh, his books, he did a book a week, uh, written and penciled. And so these envelopes would come in and you'd take the book out of the envelope and the whole room would smell like cigar smoke. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so I'd go over the, the books. He wrote the dialogue and everything right on the cardboard. And I'd go, I'd go over them and, um, and then I'd call him up and I would spend two, two to five hours a, a week, every week on the phone with Jack going over stuff, you know, and, and I, I, he was getting a little older. Sometimes he'd forget things and, and, and uh, sometimes uh, there'd be little mistakes and, and stuff. And I, I would, first thing I'd always ask him, I said, Jack, is it okay if I take out some of these exclamation points? Cause he'd put like 10 exclamation points. After every <laughs> sentence. Hey, you do that young man, you know? Okay. So uh, any, anyway, uh, uh, I, we talk about whatever it was. He was, absolutely gentlemanly any suggestion i made ever 
he said, you do that, young man. And uh, um, at, at the end of every call, he thanked me for helping him, you know? The king. Wow. Right, yeah, no. the king, right. And so we got along really well. And he was grateful that I was, you know, catching stuff. Because I think the see, he was supposed to, he had his contract said he was in charge of his own stuff. He was a writer, artist, editor. Okay. And so I think that the people before me, which would be Len and Marv, I guess, um, they just said, fine, he's the editor. You know, they just sent it through. You know, they didn't, they didn't really, uh, uh, some proofreader might, might have a look at it. That's about mm-hmm. it. And I thought, no, this guy, this guy deserves some, you know, support here, you know? And, and, uh, so I made sure to catch as many of the little glitches as I could. He, he was always happy that I caught them and, um, you know, and, and, uh, we, we got along famously. It was, it was great. I was, I always saw him when I went to San Diego and, uh, every year. And, uh, that's where that picture came from. I don't know if they still do it, but at San Diego, they used to have a stage, a low stage. And they had a bunch of easels on the stage with these giant boards on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they would recruit artists to draw a picture on stage. And a crowd, of course, would gather and watch. And uh, so they have five or six guys at a time going on, on up there. And then as, as each guy finished this thing, they had a, an auctioneer who would auction it off to the crowd mm-hmm. to raise money for next year's show. Because it was nonprofit, you know, so they... they Everybody pitched in and, you know, did drawings for them and, and, uh, you know, they sold them and made some money for the next year's show. Um, this, the, Jack Kirby was standing beside a man named Jack Katz, who I think is, he, he did a self-published book called New Kingdom or something. Hmm. And, uh, he's not, not bad, not a bad guy. He was no Jack Kirby. Uh, and so, uh, the artists were allowed to set minimum bids for their work. So, Jack Katz sets the minimum bid for uh, $200. Somebody paid it. All right. So then the auctioneer takes Jack Kirby's drawing. And this was at, a, this was at the worst time of Jack's career, the absolute nadir of his career. Uh, his books didn't sell at DC. They, they sold even worse at Marvel. It's, it, it just, you know, people thought stuff looked old-fashioned or something. Or like mm-hmm. maybe it was a reprint. And, and there was no direct market then, or else he, he would have been doing great because, you know, when in 1978, the last six months of his contract, his books took off in the direct. But the newsstand kids just that they'd walk right by. Mm-hmm. So uh, so anyway, uh, and then the fanzines were ripping on him and, you know, everybody was, you know, he, he was not popular right then. So anyway, this auctioneer, this stupid ass auctioneer takes Jack's picture holds it up and says, anybody give me five bucks for this? That's wow. a quote. That's a quote. And <clears throat> I, I, I was enraged. And, and so I, uh, and I wasn't going to let him, his go for less than Jack Katz did. Right. So I, uh, and I wasn't rich then, but I had a credit card. And so uh, I said, 200 and, you know, murmur goes through the crowd. <laughs> and, uh, uh, people said, hey, the editor-in-chief of Marvel thinks this is worth something, you know? And so all of a sudden, people start bidding, okay? I would have beaten any bid, <laughs> any bid. And uh, the auctioneer, this idiot, shuts him down. He says, no, no, Jim wants it. He wouldn't take any other bids. 
So I got it for $200. Anyway, I gave it to Jack because I said, this is going to be worth a fortune someday. You, you, you should have this. It's yours. Uh, <clears throat> I just uh, rescued it from the Philistines. That's all. You know? And <laughs> he took it. He thanked me. And he walked away. And then a minute later, he comes walking back. He says, no, I want you to have this. And you can't see it, of course. But on the bottom in pen, he wrote, uh, to a good friend. Very nice. And and for for the listeners, too, um, what we're describing here is uh, it's a very, very large uh, image, pencil and ink. um, And it's larger than life because it's Jack Kirby. He's uh, Captain America as he's kind of running uh, with his right fist forward and holding his shield in his left hand. And then in the background, almost like um, over a hill or something, you you see a a red skull uh, with his (laughs) With his droopy, droopy face, very red, uh, very uh, Jack Kirby. Uh, it's it's uh, great, and it's a it's wonderful great. story to go along with it. So yeah, thank you. This is beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's that's you know that's one of my prized possessions. Uh, uh, I can. Uh, it would be, yeah. I think, any listener's <laughs> prized possession yeah. of, for yeah, sure. Really. Yeah. So uh, in the late seventies and early eighties, you were you were writing the Avengers, and yes. um, there were several classic tales, including um, the Korvac saga. Uh, and you also shook up the roster a few times. And however, uh, Cap was a constant on the team. And, yes. and why did you decide to keep Cap front and center during your, your multiple runs uh, on writing the series? Well, um, the first several I wrote were, that was when Jerry Conway was supposed to be writing it, but he, he couldn't deliver in time. And so they'd give it to me to write overnight. And I didn't plot them. There, you know, there were somebody else's stories. Um, when I finally got to do my own plots, uh, I always felt that, you know, it, it says on the top of the above the title there it says Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And I thought there should be Earth's Mightiest Heroes in this book. And uh, um, see, I thought a lot of writers before me, they didn't want to have to worry about what you know, the continuity was in Thor or something like that. You know, they didn't want to have to keep up with the other books. Well, I was the editor. I, they called me associator. I was the editor. And uh, uh, Marv just decided, didn't want anyone else to have just editor. That's the title. He hired. Anyway, uh, so uh, I, the shaking up I did was to try to get the Earth's Mightiest Heroes together. The ones we all, you know, the, 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 the stars. And I was editing the books. So I, I could keep track of the continuity. I, I was reading them all anyway, um, and you know, before they were published. So, so I, I, I did that. And a cap to me is definitely fits in the Earth's Mightiest Hero category. And uh, I, he's one of my favorites. So uh, I, I definitely wanted him there all the time. Now we're talking about 1980. Um, one of Cap's most beloved runs was in 1980 with um, the all two short nine issue run by Roger Stern and John Byrne. Oh, yeah. um, and one of the stories involved cap being nominated for president. And uh, this was, there was an idea that uh, former writer, Roger McKenzie and artist Don Perlin pitched. Uh, but the then editor Stern uh, shot it down because McKenzie and Perlin wanted cap to win and be president for the next four years worth of stories. Um, now we fast forward to when Stern was writing and you suggested Cap should be nominated and that he would turn it down. Uh, do, 
Can you discuss maybe how this story came about? Uh, you'd have to ask Roger that. I mean, I, I, I didn't want Captain America to be the president of the United States. Captain America is not political. And so uh, it just it was a bad idea, frankly. And uh, so if they wanted to, you know, have a story where they, they had him, you know, uh, approached by it, okay, fine. But uh, I, I was, uh, wasn't interested in, in that at all. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's true to Steve's character to turn it down. So I I think yeah, we all agree like, with you. You know, it's like Will Rogers. You know, <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, anyway, no, I I he has Captain America. It's not a political figure, and that he wouldn't like that job. Speaking of this run, Cap Cap fans often talk about wishing it lasted longer with a little sigh in their voice, right? Um, and and one of our listeners, uh, Ralph. Uh, Werner, he asks uh, the question, um, we often hear from Roger Stern that the reason Stern and Byrne left the Captain America book was because they, they didn't like the edict of no multi-book story arcs. Um, there was no such edict ever. Okay. And I don't know where he got that idea unless somebody lied to him, but uh, I had no edict about that. What I was saying to people was, you know, uh, hey, how about finishing a story once in a while? It's like, look at Claremont. I mean, it's just rambled forever, you know? It was great stuff, but I people wanted endings. They wanted to know how something came out. So I, I tried to encourage people to, you know, make it come to an end at some point. If they interpreted that wrongly, I'm sorry. I, I, that wasn't that wasn't what anything I ever said. And if you look up and down the line, if, if I was, you know, telling the Captain America people that, why wasn't I telling Walt? Thor. Why wasn't I telling Chris? Why wasn't I telling anybody? You know, because mm-hmm. I wasn't. It just that's not true. Right. And and Chris, you're referring to, of course, is uh, Claremont with the X Men, yes. and those are some certainly ongoing stories. Yeah. No, his stories. I mean, he has he had so much continuity. It was like a Russian novel. You know, it's, it and and was good. It's great stuff. I wrote Chris's introduction to the Hall of Fame. But but uh, you know, I mean, he he did tend to get very involved and, and, and had a lot of tendrils going from issue to issue. Okay. I, 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 if you're, if you can handle that, if you can write a Russian novel, fine, go for it. Yeah. So in, in, in between uh, the Roger Stern and the, um, the De Mateus runs, um, you, the Mattis, but yes. So you're, you're credited with uh, co-scripting uh, a handful of, of issues during that time. Um, there, there was a, uh, in the middle of Roger McKenzie's short run, there was a, a, a script involving the grand director and national force. Um, and then you, you also pitched in um, uh, cap 257, which is a Hulk story with Mike W bar um, and 259, which was a, a Dr. Octopus story with David Michelini. Oh, yeah. um, was this common for the editor in chief to co-plot or co-script issues like this? Did they you have to kind help? of. No, I mean, sometimes they wanted help. I mean, and sometimes I'd have an idea and suggest to them they'd like it or, and, you know, want to do it. And we ended up working on it together or something. And I mean, for instance, the Phoenix saga, uh, Chris and his editor and I went to lunch because he was stuck for a storyline. And I suggested, I said, I said, Marvel's had a lot of bad guys who become good guys, but we've never had a good guy go bad and stay that way. And he said, don't say another word. I'll take it from here. You know? And, 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 um, because he wanted it to be his, you know, mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. the little tiny germ of the idea was, was, you know, I offered it up, but, but, uh, 
you know, I mean, Chris, he, he was, he was not, he didn't want you to help him. He wanted, he wanted to do it all himself. And, uh, and other guys seemed to were less, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't, uh, weren't as fussy about that. So it just depended on the guy and the situation and where the story came from. You know, it wasn't like I decided I was going to go interfere over here and I'm going to sure. go and interfere over there. Well, was it because that that two fifty nine where Cap fights Doc Ock? I mean, he never fought Doc Ock before, and and you were the the plotter, um, so it, which lends to to think that maybe it was your idea. Was that just something you wanted to see? It, it, that maybe that was that a germ of an idea of wanting to see these two characters that have never fought before fight? Well, I mean, when I when I came to Marvel, I became editor in chief. Before me, it was all these little fiefdoms. It was um, uh, whoever was writing Fantastic Four sort of thought they owned Dr. Doom, for instance, and they didn't want anyone else to use it and, 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 uh, and throw a fit if somebody wanted to. Uh, and uh, there weren't, and it was, I was the only editor back then, but I didn't have the power to change that. When I became editor-in-chief, I said, they're not your characters, they're Marvel's characters. And uh, if somebody wants to use Dr. Doom, the answer is yes. It might be yes, but can you wait a month? It, but but you know or, or can 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 he be coming back from the moon or you know whatever and um, I said but the answer is yes and so actually it by that time I'd started to hire some really great people I, the, the business was dying so I could kind of cherry pick you know the talent and I had I had Archie Goodwin who ended up doing the epic stuff um, but I had Larry Hommel Louise Simonson uh, uh, Al Milgram. Um, I had all these great guys, you know, Bob Budiansky, Carl Pott. Anyway, uh, they were fine with it. And they, they coordinated with each other and, and were, were good about that. And occasionally some, some uh, writer or somebody would, would be upset. But, but I said, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I, people want, would like to see Dr. Octopus, what he, how he would do against Captain America. And, and uh, Dr. Doom should get around. He's, you know, why, why is he always like... Um, you know, why are the Fantastic Four the ones always to respond to whatever trouble he's causing? So I just, you know, I opened the door for everybody. And, and I think that, um, I don't know if I recommended that or not, but uh, uh, who was it, Michelini wrote it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he probably, Michelini liked, um, he was one of the guys who liked collegial stuff. I mean, he worked with like Bob Layton on Iron Man and they did mm-hmm. that story ideas around and stuff. McLean was the writer I and mean, he he was in charge of that but but you know I mean he he liked to talk about it with with you I I, I plotted a couple graphic novels for him too just you know because he liked what I, I had an idea and, and, and he liked it yeah well it, it was certainly a fun story uh, certainly yeah, it uh, fans had not seen before so it was uh, it was always fun um, now indulge me this next question is a little long-winded um, but we had longtime cap writer uh, J.M. DeMatteis on the, on the show. You said uh, DeMatteis? Yeah, that's he how he told to, us he to pronounce to, it. He used to, in, the, in my day, he was Mark DeMatteis. When I was there, it was always DeMatteis. And he would correct people. I used to oh, go wow. to his parties at his house and stuff. I mean, I know him pretty well. And uh, uh, that's, he said DeMatteis? Yes. Yeah, All right. Well, the world has changed. Okay. <laughs> Um, so he was on the show and he shared an interesting story about, uh, Captain America 300. Um, and he was building to a, a final battle with the red skull and, and Steve is at a point where 
he almost dies. The Red Skull does die. Everyone Steve loves almost dies. Steve questions himself, right? He, all these years of trying to stop the bad guy by dropping a building on him or, or punching him in the face, you know, where has it gotten me? Um, there has to be a better way, a more peaceful way to, to affect positive change. So uh, Dave Mateus plotted for Steve to become this global peace activist and throw his shield in the East River. And, and during this, the whole Marvel universe would turn against him. His only allies would be Dr. Doom, as you just recently mentioned, and, and Namor. And there's this year-long story uh, ending with Cap being assassinated and then having the Black Crow be the new Cap. So he, he pitched this to his editor, Mark Grunewald, who and Gru said, great idea, let's do it. Um, that is until it found your desk. And De Mateo says, um, you, you turn the story down. And now he, he did admit, as the custodian of the Marvel Universe at the time, he understood your need to protect your vision of the character. But at the time, he was pretty upset. And then 300, which was supposed to be a, a double size issue, was cut in half. And, and you rewrote a good amount of the dialogue, uh, which he was upset. And he changed his name to Michael Ellis. Uh, for the issue, and he and he quit the book. What is your memory of how this story for Cap Three Hundred and the plot afterward unfolded? Uh, all I know is that I was hired to protect those characters, among other things. And if I felt somebody was just going off the rails, that's not Captain, and that that wouldn't happen. Uh, I I would I went back to the source. I, I looked at the stuff even that Simon and Kirby did. I looked at what Jack did. I looked at what Stan and Jack did, and I, I got a sense of who this guy is, and and I I, I didn't want them to, them to change it. I let I let people get away with awful lot of stuff. I mean, I, I was, you know, Paul Neary wrote some but not good stories, but uh, for Cap, but uh, you know, I mean, I I was trying to I tried to say yes a lot, you know, and if you if you think of me as the big blue meanie, no, I was, you know. Roy said something, you know, and you didn't do it like right now. That was your trouble. If, you know, people would, uh, you know, argue with me all the time. And it's, I didn't, it was fine. But that was a little over the top. And uh, I think the president thinks it's a little over the top. It's just not, it's not right for Cap. It's, he's a, um, you know, read the old Stan and Steve, uh, Jack stuff. And uh, uh, it's not the guy. I mean, I used to go back and I'd take panels and show them. This is who he is. Okay. And and they they nod their heads and go off and you know do what they did. But but um, anyway, I had a whole collection of those. My my one panel I used to show people for Cap um, uh, was uh, I think it was what he came back in Avengers number four, correct? Correct. Yes. And uh, so there's a panel in there. I mean, he's he's with the Avengers. They find him and he's with them. And a submariner and a small army of Atlanteans attack. And for some reason, Cap doesn't remember submariner. All right, but uh, uh, anyway, so uh, they're they're fighting, and he's fighting with the Avengers uh, against these guys. And Namor takes him from behind, and he actually grabs him by the belt, and he lifts him up way over his head, and he's about to dash him to his death on the rocks. Okay, and Cap's. Thought Malone is um, more or less. Well, he's stronger than me, but I'll find a way to outmaneuver him. <laughs> that's what's going through this guy's head. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. That's price. That's that's my guy. That that is 
uh, the hero of heroes. That's his superpower, courage. It's interesting that you said that courage. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I agree with you on that. Uh, I think there's a few different virtues that are, could be oh. his, his, his oh, superpower, yeah. you know, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to secret wars. Um, yeah, but no, that's great. Uh, we, one of our, our listeners actually had heard about the whole panel thing and that was going to be one of the questions we asked. Uh, so it was, that's the one from, from Avengers four. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bunch of other ones that were more, different situations that I had picked out. And I did this for every character, but, but uh, I, I distinctly remember using that panel for Cap. So uh, speaking of Mark Grunewald, um, he went from editor of Cap to uh, a writer um, a few issues after Adamateus left. And, and what was your relationship with Gru? And what did you think of his work on the series? Because at the time he was, he was writing stories, um, introducing the Serpent Society, uh, Flag Smasher, Scourge, uh, John Walker, the Super Patriot. Uh, I, I uh, none of those come clearly to mind. Right? I mean, I, I obviously I read them, uh, but that's a, a long time. Right. And I, I all I know is I, I think uh, I thought Mark was a pretty good writer, and I thought he did a figure. He certainly worked hard, and my relationship with him was very good. I mean. He was sort of, in, in some ways, the, I don't know, uh, in charge of morale there. He, he was always doing some crazy stuff, to, you know, just, just for fun. Because you're working these 14, 16-hour days sometimes, and, and you just got to do something silly once in a while. And he, one time for Halloween, he built a haunted house in his office. <laughs> so, did you not? <laughs> Uh, I mean, with creaky stairs and lights that flash and ghosts that appear and spooky music and uh, that's, that's over the top, but it's, it's, uh, you know, that was him. He was always dreaming up something like that, doing something, something crazy and talented guy. Brilliant. Brilliant. Man. So um, about six months ago, I think we had a chance, Jim, to, uh, to interview on the podcast, uh, the Marvel senior VP of publishing Tom Bravor who at the time was, uh, was editor of, uh, of Captain America. Um, and we talked a, a lot about a lot of different things, but one of the things we talked about was the industry's push right now to include more diversity in its hero rosters, offering a broader spectrum of faces, genders, sexual orientation, et cetera, with which potential readers could identify. But we also talked about the fact that this has received not, uh, not a little pushback in some quarters, especially among legacy fans worried that it was diluting the brand a little bit um, and maybe even seeking to meet a demand that isn't, uh, you know, isn't as strong uh, as uh, perhaps others think it might be. So you were once in the trenches trying to navigate the supply-demand equation uh, to publish something that, that, that sells and keeps the company profitable, but, but that's also interesting and entertaining. So well, that's why I wanted to make it that why it sold. I wanted to yeah. do entertainment first. And anyway, go on. Yeah. So I mean, it, it it's it's alleged that back in uh, back in the 1980s, Marvel had a policy that there wasn't going to be any gay heroes in the Marvel that's, universe. That's baloney. I mean, like the, the, that's that's not true. We were creating a North Star at the time when they were people were saying that in the press. What's wrong with you people? Yeah. Anyway. I mean, yeah. I had a I had, I wrote a story for the Hulk magazine. Nobody ever wanted to write the last issue of me. I was some superstition. So I ended up writing 
a bunch of last issues because you know nobody wanted it. all right so uh i wrote the last issue and i had um it was not a story that really had anything to do with with gays or anything like that it was a drug story in fact uh, but i did have one scene in it where uh bruce banner is attacked by uh, gay rapists in the in the in the, in the, at, the at the y okay where did i get that well, that actually happened to a friend of mine, and I was a I was a charter subscriber to New Woman magazine, all right, and they had a series of articles early on in their publication history about post rape syndrome. In other words, when when you're being attacked, sometimes it just doesn't even register. You're just in shock, and it's later that you get all the you throw up and have the revulsion and all that. And I I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the if the Hulk didn't just conveniently, or Banner didn't just conveniently turn into the Hulk at the moment he needs to, you know. And I always, I always was trying to tell people, no, the Hulk is the problem. It, I, I think uh, Joss Whedon got it right in that last Avengers film, um, where he gets becomes the Hulk and he tears up the city. I think it was, was it Iron Man? Yeah, Iron Man has to put him down. Uh, so I, I, I thought, well, this is a good chance. So I had him attack. He gets away like my friend did, and he gets away, and, and it doesn't hit him until he gets outside, when he's, he got, gets out the back door. And then he's like, oh, no, not now. And he turns into the Hulk and tears up the city. And, and so I, I wrote that scene, and I didn't think anything of it. It was an event that really happened. I was doing the thing that I learned about in, in New Woman magazine. But then we, just, we started getting phone calls, like, uh, uh, why are you anti-gay? I mean, I, I told, I told people, I said, look, we're equal opportunity. Anybody can be a villain. And, uh, <laughs> and so it, most of them calmed down. You know, I get several calls from the, there's a lot, there's a lot of gay press in, in New York city. I got calls from several. One of them, the advocate wanted to interview me and I, you know, okay. So the guy comes up to my office and and he sits down, opens his notebook, and his first question is, why is Marvel anti-gay? I said, we're not. And he said, well, then why are you anti-gay? I said, I'm not. He said, well, then how come Marvel doesn't have any gay characters? Meanwhile, Bill Mandel had already created North Star, and I don't know if it was on the stands yet, but we'd already done that. He says, well, he says, well uh, why doesn't Marvel have any characters that are gay? I said, we get plenty of them. We get lots. He said, which ones? I said, you can't tell, can you? You know, so he folds up his notebook and he leaves and he writes the story he was going to write no matter what. So fine. You know, I mean, that's uh, that's and then and then there's this this thing. I think what you're talking about is that uh, uh, I think once I said and I was referring to Captain America, Thor, uh, uh, Spider-Man, the intention of the creators was not that those people were going to be gay. Okay, or communist, or you know, uh, uh, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it just uh, that was. I, I said, follow the intention of the creator. Now, you want to make a new character? Go, hey, go, go crazy. You know, anything. We are equal opportunity, and um, uh, you know. So, uh, uh, Bill Manlo, um, Roy had done a, a gay, gay character, sort of. Called Sweet William, and it, it was not done right. I, don't, I think it was, you know, didn't, that, I don't think that was the way to go. 
Uh, Bill, I think, did a good job on it. And then that, you know, everybody, uh, all of a sudden everybody won. And uh, fine, that's that's terrific. But my, I, all I wanted, all I ever said was, no, Captain America isn't. Because that wasn't what Jack had in mind. Okay, or, or Joe Simons. I know Joe, I knew Joe Simons. Anyway, go on. No, you know, as the editor or editor in chief, uh, you are tasked with a lot of tough calls like that, tough questions, right? Um, it goes along with 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 role, um, and I'm sure working with different types of of writers and artists. I mean, people um, who are very good at what they do. Um, you have to kind of come in uh, to to kind of help guide them some, in some cases. So in your blog at, at jimshooter.com, which I highly recommend everyone checks out. Um, you mentioned that you tried your hand at inking, um, but could not, <laughs> could not get work. And it was very difficult. Um, in another blog that you wrote, you titled the inking rant. Uh, you discuss your four aspects to being a good inker in great depth, which brings us to another guest we had on the show, which was inker John Beatty. Uh, okay. he, he had spent a considerable part of his Marvel career on cap, uh, inking Mike Zach, finishing Paul Neary. Uh, and John mentioned a rule that, that you had, if there's a solid black in the foreground, you can't have black in the background because yes. you thought it would now, diminish the field of death. From? I, this is, that's just crazy. I didn't make rules. I just <laughs> said, Hey, the depth doesn't work here. And I think it's because the, the planes are coming together. It's, it's, there's the, Big black shapes in the foreground, big black shapes in the background. You can't, you can't tell. Be the same. If it was all white. It does. It, it, the, the thing is, I, I learned about inking. I, I was taught by great people about inking. I couldn't make it come out of my hands, but I, 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 I was very much aware. And I used to show people black and whites that Frazetta did, black and whites that Hal Foster did, black and whites that a lot of great artists did along the way, and, and show them. This is how you create depth. This is how you separate planes. Dan Green, great inker, very talented artist. Okay, he was inking uh, X Men, X Men, I think. And I, I sat him down a couple times. I said, I said, Dan, I said, this, it's like a Rorschach test. There's no, you, you can't tell any depth to it. I said that you, you, you have great hands, total control of the tools, you know the techniques. You know, I said, but but you know you've got to create depth. And he just kind of like nods his head and goes and does the same stuff so one day he com- he comes in and he brought in some paintings he did i didn't know he painted, you know but he brings in a couple of paintings and they're, they're really nice and they had miles and i said dan i said see what you did here he's like yeah what what i said see the miles of depth i said do that with your ink he says oh that's what you mean I see, literally, he says, oh, that's what you mean? You know, because he was so used to editors stuff, telling him stupid stuff, you know, and, and most editors will tell you, well, you've got to spot your blacks and you have to, you know, that, what does that mean? I'd like to kill the person who said that with my shoe. I mean, it's just, that, that's just one of those things you're just supposed to say. It doesn't mean anything. You know, what's spotting blacks? Oh, make a pattern with your blacks. Why? I'm telling a story. I want people to be able to see what's going on. I want them to understand and, and clarity. Depth is a key to clarity. So if you can create depth like Hal Foster did, or or Frank Frazetta when he was doing pen and ink, or or any of the really great guys, uh, Alex Raymond, um, you know, 
if you can do that, then, you know, you're better. And so I told John, I didn't give him any stupid orders. I just tried. I think sometimes I'd, I'd say something and then it would get boiled down into a rule by other people. I talked philosophy. I didn't talk. To, I talked the approach. I didn't talk about, you know, don't put black here if you're putting it there. I just said anything like that in my life. Go on. No, no. It's, listen, we, we love getting the full story. Uh, and hearing hearing everything from both sides. So this is this is great. Uh, and you know, again, I think I was going with that question was, you know, as an editor or editor in chief, you know, you you often have to um, guide people who. And let let's face it, right? Um, you're dealing with artists that have a history of being, you know, maybe uh, a little bit sensitive or, or maybe defensive of their work. Right. Uh, so hearing someone coming in and saying, well, try it this way or do it this way. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're, there's going to be rough, uh, ruffles and feathers. I guess so. I don't know. I never set out to ruffle anybody's feathers and I certainly never like yelled at them or anything. I, I just, uh, I, I just, when I came in, the company was dying. The whole industry was dying. Warren went out of business. My first year as editor-in-chief, Warren went out of business, Charlton went out of business, Harvey stopped publishing, Archie went all reprint, DC canceled over 40% of their titles on one day. Okay? You should have seen the line at my door. Unemployed cartoonists. All right. Well, I mean, so I, I felt that we got to make better comics, guys. we got mm-hmm. to do good entertainment. And, and it's entertainment first. And uh, we're entertainers. And how do you make good comics? You, you you make a good story and you tell it well you make it clear you make it understandable people say oh you don't like sophisticated storytelling with all the overlapping interlocking that's, that's not sophisticated sophisticated is when anyone in the world can read it easily like jack's stuff for instance and you know it, it just uh um so i'm i was you know if i told people you know if i worried about depth that's because i i was trying to Keep us alive. And a couple good things happened. The direct market started up. We started making better books. That helped them. More stores sold more. And so to me, it's like, it's not about, oh, how can I make money? It's about how can I keep this place alive? How can I keep these guys employed? And, 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 and well, the way to do it is good books. And then they sell. And then everybody's happy. The people who bought them are happy. The guys are cashing big checks. You know, we had royalties. Yeah, thanks. Right. Thanks to something that you initiated, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, when I came in, you got your page rate, and that's all. And the page rates were really low, and and so I uh, uh, asked the president. Of the, I reported to the president. He was my boss. The only guy I could overrule me. And I I made a deal with him. I said, if I beat my projections or if I save money, I want to use that to pay the artist better. And he said, I don't care what. You as long as you don't lose money. That's all right. Good deal. That's pretty free hand. So I doubled the rates. I kept finding ways to save money. Doubled them again. Kept increasing them, you know, after that. Installed all kinds of benefits. Uh, life insurance. If you, a freelancer, does three jobs a year, life insurance. Health insurance. Three jobs a year, health insurance. Really good. Um, I, said, I said, it's work for hire. I can't change that. They won't let me. But it can be good. We will pay for all your materials. Marvel just used to just to supply the paper because they didn't want 
you know, the penciler to use crappy paper. So they bought their own. I said, no, no, we, we supply everything. Ink, pens, whiteouts, brushes. Buy, buy a Winsor Newton brush, see how much that costs you. Um, so, so all the materials, uh, I said, if you're doing on the phone, doing business with Marvel, I'll pay the bill. If you're, if you're traveling, we'll, pay, we'll put you up in a nice hotel, pay all your expenses. If I ask you, I mean, if you just go decide, well, that's your, that's your own problem. And, and postage. I said, we pay, we pay all the postage. So, so we were, we made it, I made it a good situation. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so more talent shows up. And, uh, and, you know, like I say, better books. And then it helps the direct market grow. And then we grew. And then because the direct market was growing, all the little guys now had a venue where they could sell their stuff. All of a sudden, there's, there's Cerebus and there's Distant Soil and there's ElfQuest and Ninja Turtles and all this other stuff, you know. And, 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 and the rising tide lifted all the books. DC started going up. Everybody, you know, was doing real well there for a while. And none of them are going to just stand there and let us you know, get away right. with, you know, DC starts introducing all their benefits and stuff like that. They're fighting with us over Miller and later Byrne. And, you know, I mean, it, it was a real competition. It was good for everybody. Yeah. And, and a lot of those things that you did, um, as you mentioned, just simply created a whole new atmosphere for, and treated, treated these artists uh, like professionals. And, uh, and, and, well, yeah. as you, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, when I came in. Was anarchy. I mean, it's just everybody just doing whatever they wanted, and some of it was really unprofessional. And and uh, uh, everything was late. It was incredible. I mean, um, when I my first month, we were supposed to publish forty five color comics. Only twenty six made it out the door. Is that is that something or what? It, that, by that... April, by April, I had the correct number of titles. Had, issues had been published for that year and by the end of that year we, we were on time and we stayed on time for 10 years and it, it does it, you don't have to you know i mean you, you can be you be a professional do do great work terrific work like walt did. do it on time like walt did. you know i mean it's it, it's you know, that's a that's what a professional does he doesn't take more work than he can do and he he does the work he commits to uh on time and you know, hey, guess how much money we saved by being on time? There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because when you when the book doesn't show up at the separator or it doesn't show up at the printer, you pay anyway. Because you reserve that time. And if nothing shows up, you're getting a penalty. And and so when I eliminated the penalties and the express shipping and stuff like that, man, we got we got really good. And anyway, that's why we got these great guys like Dimateus. Is that how he says it? Uh, that's how he says it, yeah. Yeah, he came in during my time there, and he's you know a talented guy, you know. And back in those days, he was kind of a hippie. <laughs> and so I go, you know, it's just uh, yeah, he's such a cool guy. He really is. He's and so talented. And uh, Zach loves working. Yeah, but speaking of, of Zach, um, so and, and speaking of raising sales and things like that, um, let's talk about Secret Wars. Okay, Cap was very obvious front and center. Right, starting with the cover to number one. Um, in the first issue, he took command pretty easily, where Wolverine commented, uh, you know, good at giving orders, aren't Amy? And and the Hulk replies, Yes, maybe the best. 
Um, yet there was a, you know, a little bit of a conversation among the characters before settling on Cap. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, James Foley, he asks, um, during planning this, because obviously you were the writer of Secret Wars, um, with it being the biggest crossover maxi series made, was there any discussion on Cap being the default leader for everyone, or was it just a foregone conclusion uh, at the time? And, and he also wants to thank you for everything you've done for the industry. Oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank him for saying that. That's nice. No, I, well, I was the editor-in-chief, okay? And I, the reason I wrote Secret Wars is to have all these characters. I gave it to Michelini, Byrne, and Claremont. Gave it to Claremont, the other two. You know, I, I, everybody, I thought, all right, they all yell at me anyway. So, you know, I'll do it. And besides, I'm the guy in charge here. And so if I say this is what Captain America would do, that's what Captain America would do. All right? So, you know, I I had the, you know, the bully pulpit there. So, so I tried not to be a bozo. I tried to, like, talk to Chris, find out what his plans were, see if I could help, see if I could do things in secret wars that would serve him. For instance, Kitty Pride was supposed to be in it. And after a few weeks, he said to me, he says, this story is, you know, going to take, they're going to be out away for a while. I said, yeah, it all happens between December and January, but it's a, it's more than one month. And he says, well, I got this storyline running with the little kind of forbidden romance between Kitty and Colossus, who's older. And not, nothing off color just just he had a little little puppy love thing there and i said yeah he said well you're gonna have to deal with that i said i guess so and he said i don't want you to do that he said i want to he said he said i i i want to do that myself i i you know i don't want you to have to deal with a relationship i said how about we leave kitty home he says you do that i said yeah sure you know if that if that helps you sure absolutely you know we'll we'll, we'll get by with that and uh, and I said, I'll throw in this. How about Colossus has a little fling on Battle War? He says, well, that plays right into my hands. I said, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, I really tried to work with everybody. And 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 uh, with Captain America being the leader, it just seemed to me he, he's the natural leader. He, he, you know, and uh, nobody objected. I didn't discuss it with anybody. But but uh, when I told people this, what the things I had in mind, everybody matter of fact i hardly got any objections the whole time almost not no one uh, claremont once objected because i had spider-man holding his own in a fight against the x-men and he says well look, that, that wouldn't happen i said yes it would and he said he's no he said cyclops just has to look at him he's got him i said chris he dodges electro's lightning you know <laughs> right i'm sorry you know the guy senses where it's going and he's not there and and uh and so he grumbled about it and then when he when he read what i wrote i showed it to him before it went out um he sort of grudgingly said yeah well it's pretty good he said they win chris you know <laughs> <laughs> they do win didn't presser xavier finally does something useful anyway uh, you know i tried not to i tried to work with him and mm-hmm. uh you know it's like the same thing with the fantastic four burn did not want anything to do with this you know and I said, tell me something you always want to do with the Fantastic Four. You haven't done anything. He said, well, I want to, I'd like to have She-Hulk in the Fantastic Four. I saw about I leave the thing on Battle World, you know, where he can turn back into Grimm. And I said, that's great. Okay, yeah. So then he did a whole run with the She-Hulk and mm-hmm. the thing comes back eventually. That was fun. 
Yeah. No, in there were so many different characters to work with. And, and as you yeah. mentioned, the different writers that you had to, to, to also work with it was, as far as their stories were concerned and what yeah, was going I, on in their I own tried. books. Yeah. I tried to, I tried to be, I tried to make sure it was faithful to the characters, but I tried to play it like they did. Like, like I'd ask the guy, I said, how would this person say this? And they'd tell me, and I'd say, okay, that's fine. I mean, I, that fits. Uh, or, or I, you know, tell them I had a scene I had planned and maybe they have a suggestion. You know, we are, I, I was trying to be good about it, and uh, it came out okay. I think. Well, I, I think it came out more than okay. But, but oh. speaking of the staying true to a character, getting back to our favorite Captain America. Yep. yep. Um, so later in the Secret War series, um, there's a scene where Cap and Magneto are arguing, and Wolverine butts in and he claims. Cap only fights for the American dream for humans, not mutants. And he accused Cap of doing nothing to protect mutants' rights. And I, when I was reading this, I personally wanted Cap to put Wolverine in his place and tell him, you know, he stands for the rights for, to pursue all people to pursue the American dream. But he doesn't. And, and Wolverine answers with a, I used to have some respect for you. So later in that issue, with the building collapsing, Wolverine comes across Cap, who is risking his own life to free the villains so they don't die trapped and wolverine realizes cap does protect all even mutants and he mentions that to to steve and i loved cap's response and he said some of my best friends are people and i have to say that really struck me as a wonderful thing to say and that you really conveyed the essence of steve rogers with that yeah, for the first thing you were talking about there, see, I think in a situation like that, you're not going to win that argument. You know, if, if he said, no, no, really, I, you know, so I, I, I sort of had him, you know, just shrug it off, I guess. And I uh, don't remember it word for word, but but uh, but I wanted to have Wolverine see it, you know, for himself. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and it worked. It worked beautifully. Oh, thank uh, thank yeah, I mean, uh, as Cap fans, he really captured the essence of the character. And then, uh, and then, of course, to end the twelve issue series, you you have Cap confront the omnipotent Doom, uh, yes. where no matter how many times Doom obliterates Cap, he keeps coming back to his force of will, which also could be considered what many fans think of his superpower, his 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 will, um, yes, iron will. Uh, was there any question when you were writing this series that in your mind Cap was going to be the one to defeat uh, Doom? Uh, well, to, you know, that's kind of the way that when I was creating a story, it's kind of way it was headed. I mean, I it took a long time to work. I had to work this all out first, in, way in advance, so that I could tell everybody Spider Man's coming back in a black costume. You know, uh, Iron Man's going to have this gadget. Uh, you know. And uh, uh, so I had to I work that out, and it just it just seemed to me that that nobody is gonna you know win a a just mano a mano with with essentially God, you know. Mm -hmm. So the only way you win that is with courage and determination. And and here's here's Doom, who's got this power, and he can't quite control it because it's too big. And any thought that crosses his mind just might happen. And when he's trying to kill Captain America, the thought crosses his mind, I could get him. And then he comes back, <laughs> you know. And, and so, it, you know, it was, it was uh, to me, that was like, uh, who would keep going in that circumstance? Captain America would. And, and 
Uh, <clears throat> oh yeah, and I was going to say it also helped that Mike Zek was drawing. Hmm. I knew he was going to nail it, and he did. So, uh, and John did a great job on the inking. It's terrific. Yeah, well, but you're you're preaching to the choir when it comes to Mike Zek. He's my all-time favorite cap artist. Um, yeah. And so, in, in the fall of 1986, after he completed his Punisher miniseries, um, Mike Zek was brought back to do the covers for Captain America for like 15 issues. Yeah. Was this your decision, or and if so, why? I, I, I left I left all that stuff up to the editors. I, I, I tried to be as non-invasive as I possibly could. Before I was editor-in-chief, every editor-in-chief previous, they designed all the covers themselves. They'd sit down with John Romita, Bill Kane, Dave Cockrum, somebody, and, and they'd do that week's covers, you know? And I don't care how good you are. I, even if you're Archie Goodwin and you're doing forty-five, fifty a month, you know, a certain sameness is going to creep in. I don't care how good you are if you're doing that many. And so when I got these great editors, I would let them do their own covers, you know, and, and so I would approve them because I had to sign off on them before they went out. But, but uh, uh, that way we got a tremendous variety and, and, you know, Louise's were nothing like Carl Potts and not, nothing like Larry's. And, you know, I mean, they, they, we had a variety. It all had the Marvel trade dress, you know, it was Marvel, but, but there was a great um, variety of covers. And, and Mike was just, he's just one of the greatest cover artists. I mean, the, Stuff he did for Craven's Last Hunt mm-hmm. and a couple of the Secret Wars covers he just knocked out of the park. The Black Spider-Man one, the first one, too. Uh, the Doom one. Oh, man. It, he, he did so well with, with covers that uh, whichever editor, whoever whoever was, they picked them. And that was fine with me. I wasn't going to argue with that. Yeah. Well, I, I think, um, again, as someone who grew up on, on Zex cap, and that's where I got my affinity, uh, I was so pleased to see him on the cover and then you open it up and it's not Zach and it's like, ah, oh. but you know, that's, that's what he was doing at the time. He was just that, doing covers. Yeah. Well, that was pretty well established, uh, policy in the comic book business is that you'd have somebody else do the cover sometimes. Some guys were good at covers and some guys just you know, didn't have a, the flair. They're good story artists, but right. not necessarily that, you know, iconic shot. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, anyway, Mike was one of the best. And, you know, it, it was common for to have someone else do it. So uh, a little, little closer to uh, present time, uh, your reaction to the Nick Spencer Secret Empire storyline uh, was reported at the, uh, at the time the, when, when that run came out. And I think at one point you said, Captain America, a Nazi, are you kidding me? Jack is rolling in his grave. Joe Simon is going to rise up out of his grave and kill those people. Yes. Now, I actually I, thought that, I thought the storyline was, was intriguing and, and somewhat entertaining, but I'll concede that it was overly complicated and it did go on way too long. But what exactly caused you to have such a visceral reaction to that that uh, particular storyline it, it just it was not captain america it was so wrong it was so bad it was it was the world's biggest gimmick it's like at that era, particular era it was like uh, the writers all seemed to be uh, i don't think it was anybody running the ship and it's, even at dc the same thing the writers kept trying to think of what's the most shocking thing we can do i know we'll break batman's legs uh, you know what's the what's the most you know, 
unbelievable thing we can. And so you had all these stories where the building burns, the baby dies, the villain gets away cackling, and Batman is lying there on the ground. I, I said that that's a that's not Batman. B that that's a stupid story. And and I felt that Captain America was the wrongest of all of them. <laughs> it was I thought no, no way. It, it it was it wasn't even that oh he became a Nazi because you know had some brain disease or something. No, and he always was. What? That doesn't even that that doesn't make sense at all. That's just stupid. Anyway, yeah. So the- you know, I yeah that's fine. They they I, I don't I don't get a vote anymore. So uh, <laughs> they, and maybe most people are glad, but I I, I would never. Well, that, that is definitely one of the, uh, I think, probably one of the top three or four storylines that causes the most discussion in the Captain America comic book uh, uh, fans Facebook group when it comes up. So I had to ask that one. So, Barry, you, know, you look around at what the sales situation is for comics these days. And my line average, average book, you know, 300,000 copies. Their line average is around 10,000. I mean, what what have they done? They've driven away the readers. They, they've done stories that, you know, I mean, us diehards because we're we're fans, okay, and we'll read it, even if you know it's not what we had in mind. But but uh, you know, a lot of civilians, it's like, what? Who, who is this guy? You know, and they they uh, walked away. And then I've had people say, oh no, it's the internet, Jim. It's this. No, it isn't. Uh, that's what they said back in this in the seventies. They said, "Oh, it's TV, it's movies, it's uh, you know." No, it wasn't. <laughs> it, good stories, well told. Comics have iconic power. It's a, it's a, one of the greatest ways to tell a story because in a movie, you've got all the motion. You say, "Oh, it's motion." Yeah, but you also have the motions you don't want. In a comic book, you have absolute control of that image. You can make every single image iconic. Superman always, you know, sits erect, looks noble. He always stands erect and looks noble, only when he's done right. Um, uh, but in the movies, eventually he's going to sit down. You have that shot with his butt sticking out. You know, it, 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 it's not, you, you can't, look at Frank Miller's stuff. He is the one, he is the master. Every panel telling you exactly what he wants you to know. And it's done with iconic. So, I wanna, it's a good medium. I want to follow up on that because, um, you know, one of the criticisms of that run, and in fact, the, the most recent, the volume of Captain America, volume nine, is that they just go, they go on too long. The stories go on too long. And I, yeah, and I, I complained you, about that once and now everybody you know says I made a rule. No. <laughs> well, I know I've read in an interview with you that you've, you've mentioned this, this phenomenon that you characterized as, uh, well, uh, as decompressed storytelling. Oh yeah. That's right. So can you, can you tell me a little bit of what you mean by that and what the effect is it's having on the industry? Well, I mean, this, uh, this, what's his face, Bendis guy. And I mean, I don't know if he invented it, but he certainly was a champion of it. Um, so what happens is, is somebody said, oh, you should read this. Uh, Bendis guy's pretty good. You should read the origin of this new Miles Morales Spider-Man. So I get the first issue and it has shot of Spider-Man swinging through the city. And you can see he looks younger, you know, not as filled out. Okay. Inside the book, there's no Spider-Man in question. You know, uh, it, it, it's okay. He's on the cover in question, but he's not in the book. And P.S., what happens in that book, that first issue, is basically he gets bitten by a spider and he finds out he can turn invisible, which puzzles him. That's okay. 
So I'll get the second. There he is on the cover again in, in the Spider-Man suit, not in the interior. And by the end of that, he accidentally he accidentally finds out he can stick to a wall. I'm thinking, this is going to take a long time. <laughs> Somebody told me it was like 12 issues. Okay, so your investment would be $48 for the story that's expanded better than 11 pages. And I, I, I just, I thought, is it any wonder that, that you know, People are giving up on comics and starting to date girls. I mean, it's just because they're pathetic. I mean, they they move glacially. And and it's just, uh, not not everybody does, but I mean, some some of the guys do that. And they want to do every little thing of every every scene. And a lot of them think they're writing movies. Well, you're not writing a comic. It's a slightly different medium. Make an adaptation. So we have another uh, listener question. This one from Joshua Van Dyne, who wants to know, if you could have worked with any of the legendary cap writers, either before or after your time as editor-in-chief, who would it be and why? Legendary cap writers. Um, I thought Roger Stern was great. I did work with him. And uh, we're we're good friends. I go up to Ithaca, see him sometimes, Archie Goodwin, I think, is one of the maybe the best we ever had. And anything he did, I, I, I would, I would have loved to work with him. If you could tell the the Cap fans listening, anything that you would like to be remembered about your work on the character of Captain America, what would you like to be remembered for? Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess it was, you know, it was the best I did with Cap. They want to remember that, okay, and he wins. <laughs> that's 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 the thing, you know. Captain America versus Galactus. My money's on Cap. Very nice. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, what are you working on now? Is uh, is there anything you've you've get, keeping you busy nowadays? Well, yeah, I can't really talk about it too much, but I have uh, I have a, a series pending with one of the uh, TV streaming services. Actually, it's several. I uh, have very good people attached, pretty heavy-duty Hollywood guys. And, uh, is that something we'll be seeing later this year in, in 22? I, I, I would say 2022, maybe. Well, um, even though you maybe not have been on there for a few years, I, I do encourage people to check out jimshooter.com. He, he has a lot of good blog, uh, good insight on there, some great stories. Good stories. Yeah, so. Yeah, and I got, you know, old letters and yeah, I'm, I will get back to that someday. I also have been encouraged to gather it together and sort of turn it into a book in my copious free time. <laughs> so well, we'll I I know a lot of comic fans who would love to, love to see a, a book by you. So, um, so Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your time with us, uh, sharing some stories behind those those great stories you were involved with, uh, and setting the records straight. You're not the ninth. Marvel EIC, uh, maybe six or seventh at best. So, uh, and, and a few other things, but it, it was great having you on the show. Yeah. Anytime you want somebody obstreperous, just give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be right there. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Thank you. You guys are great. Thanks a lot. Uh, well, Bob, that was a fun and interesting and uh, electric conversation with Jim yeah. Shooter. It, it provocative at times as well. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and, and I got to say, I, first of all, it, 
there, there's two things about this interview that really, uh, really um, surprised me. One is um, that he wasn't the ninth uh, ed- <laughs> editor in chief of Marvel, as as it's written so many places. That wasn't it. That wasn't oh, it. Okay. I, I mean, I really, I thought he was very candid, and I, I, I always enjoy that. I enjoy getting like different perspectives on an issue because you know we you always get the truth when you you see different perspectives on mm-hmm. uh, a singular issue and so uh, i really enjoyed his candidness the other thing is and i didn't want to say this to jim because uh, i was afraid he'd be offended um but he looks like a doppelganger for my grandfather oh yeah uh, as i remember him now my grandfather mm-hmm. died when i was like in ninth grade mm-hmm. so uh but so it's been a very, very long time since I've seen my grandfather, but he looked just like my grandfather. And so every time I would, I'd look at him and ask him a question, I was like, it's like talking to my grandfather, you know, no, uh, and I'm, I'm sure, sure he, he wouldn't have been offended by uh, that. He'd be honored. Well, you know, yeah. But anyway, so it was, it was a little distracting for me at times, but it was so cool to, to have the opportunity to talk to him. Yeah. Well, I can totally appreciate that because sometimes when I look at you, I see my grandfather. <laughs> Oh, well played, Rick. Well played. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I got to say, yeah, that this will go down as a great way to kick off 2022. Uh, and uh, we, we're so pleased to have uh, Mr. Shooter on the show. All right, Bob. So next episode is going to be 66 and we're going to cover volume seven. We haven't touched volume seven yet in, in our one year of, of doing podcasts. So uh, I think it's about time we get to it, right? Yeah, it doesn't get a lot of love. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, um, but I think it's due. I think it's due uh, that we 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 spend some time on it. Yeah, and fear not, fear not, listeners. We are not going to do the first ten issues, uh, which is uh, Dimension Z. That's a very long story for another time. We're going to do a four part story called Loose Nuke. And that will be covering volume seven issues, 11 through 14. So come back next episode uh, while we cover that panel by panel. All right, Bob, as always, I've enjoyed wrapping cap with you. Talk to you soon.